I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. When I was preparing for this, I um, drew up a list of things that we might talk about today, and that included futurity, utopia, failure, idealism, um, lineation, punctuation, revision, and many other things as well, romanticism, childhood, so, so well. Um, hopefully we can sort of dash through all of those in about 45 minutes. Um, but what I wanted to start with, I suppose, was a question about the title, um, The Hatred of Poetry, because it led me to expect that it was going to be a really vitriolic book, and I was quite up for that. Um, but in fact, it turns out to be a book which is not very much about hatred, and in fact ends with the possibility of love. Um, it seems to concern more a feeling of disappointment rather than hatred. So given that there's so much hatred about, and I hope all of us in this room are feeling quite directed hatred at certain political figures in this moment, certainly a lot of hatred's coming the other way, isn't it? Um, why, why hatred? Why the hatred of poetry? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, thank you for doing this, and thank you all for coming. I, I mean, I think that probably the political moment, I'm trying to remember like when I decided. But, okay, so one thing is that I Googled, like, I hate poetry, and it gets a whole lot of returns, and more than any other medium. If you play, like, I hate, you know, music or piano, like, depending on how specific you get. Like, there is a kind of vernacular discourse of hatred for poetry, and I've just heard it. I've just heard it in my life, like if I'm foolish enough to tell someone I'm a poet. Um, so there was that surround. But then, I mean, I think that we live in a moment where um, disappointed expectations are taking the form of hatred, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in a lot of different ways. And I do think there's, it's not identical, but I think there is a kind of structural homology between the embarrassment and rage that not understanding poetry can produce and the embarrassment and rage that not understanding why, you know, even though you played by the rules of middle-class America Mm -hmm. or whatever, like Mm -hmm. things haven't worked out for you. So I think I wanted the strongest emotion because I do think that poetry is a place where people go to express rage at the actual, Mm -hmm. you know, rage at like what you have to settle for um, 
and that anger at poetry is sometimes anger at um, the sense that viable alternatives and the ability to represent alternatives to a disastrous status quo, it feels like that area of our experience has been foreclosed. So I think that was like, there is so much hate that that was part of, but there is hatred directed at poetry. That language comes up, but also that I think it links up with other kinds of um, fury mm. in the culture. But you're right. The book is a kind of defensive poetry ultimately and is full of love for poetry and wants to figure out how contempt for poetry can actually be a really generative um, like reading practice and even even gather certain kind of compositional strategies. Mm. Mm. So now we're starting to get into the argument of the essay, I think, a bit more, which might be familiar to people because it was originally published as a, an LRB essay and then was revised and extended for this form. Um, so um, the hatred, um, the rage against the actual that you're, you're talking about. Um, so in other words, the poem, in its disappointing actuality, um, inspires a kind of um, anger at the world that it can't contain is essentially the argument in the, in the essay. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it tells a story using the language of Alan Grossman, which I don't believe is like a truth about poetry. I just mm. think it's one way of talking about poetry that can account for some of the negative feelings it generates, mm. where, I mean, Grossman's account is that you're, you know, the poet, and for him that really means kind of lyric poetry, like you're, you're moved to sing because you want to use the fallen representational materials of this world to like build a new world and mm. you can't like you're always trapped by finitude and you always are in a world characterized by social difference and violence so there's an unbridgeable gap between the impulse that gives rise to poetry and the actual poem so he describes it as the, the bitter logic of the poetic principle is that every poem every real poem is to a certain degree the empirical record of the failure to actualize mm. poetry with a capital p mm. or whatever but then i want to figure out like what what could be a kind of like not depressing version of that story mm, mm. I mean because it, it's also platonic with the capital P that story isn't it in the sense that you know what we get are sort of failed copies of some ideal of beauty or of poetry that exists kind of beyond our reach and that the the actual poems lead us on this sort of ladder up towards the thing the ideal thing, which is the poem that can't be actually achieved, but has a sort of oneness, a unity, a wholeness that we'll never find on this earth. Yeah, except that for Plato, that exists, right? I mean, that, that yeah. that's a real thing. That yeah. I, I mean, that it's not it's not phenomenal, but it's real. And I think for Grossman, although I don't even know if this is true for Grossman, but certainly for me, it's I don't think that the real poem like exists anywhere. Mm. Um, I think that the word poetry is used to denote a set of d impossible demands mm. a lot of the time. And that the, like, like if the, if the fantasy of the poem, and this is hardly the fantasy of all poetry, but it's the fantasy of certain parts of, of poetry. If the fantasy is like to reconcile the individual and the social by like singing a song that's at once irreducibly individual, but can be accessed by everyone. Mm. The problem is not that I think that poem really exists. It's that I think the technology, like that you couldn't, that kind of reconciliation would have to be achieved with revolution. It's not going to mm. be achieved with the poem. Mm. So it's not platonic in the sense that it, it feels like that poem is a real thing in the world. It's that poetry is a word to denote something that can't be actualized by poems. Mm. But there's no poem out there. Okay. 
So it's more you. Which I think, by the way, I kind of fucked up in the book because a lot. I think I didn't. I think I should have said. I should have done. I should have said what I just said <laughs> in the book. Well, it's always improving. It's always being revised. Um, yeah. Well, because I, I mean, I was thinking about the n- number of sort of origin myths that you give us. I mean, over the course of your books, you give us quite a few different ones um, for protagonists or speakers or in, indeed for yourself in this essay, if we can say that. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's an origin myth which is to do with um, the Challenger disaster and the poems that you heard that the protagonist, sorry, heard, yeah. read uh, after that disaster and then turned out to be kind of plagiarized pastiches of other bad poems. Um, and there's the origin myth of, of play, reading Plato in the library in Topeka in Kansas. Um, and there's lots and lots of stuff in No Art about aerial perspectives. There's stuff about um, how in the early days of cinema, um, acrobats did routines against a black curtain, so it looked as if they were flying through the sky, but they were actually sort of rolling around in probably really pathetic fashion on the ground. And then you say something about how the philosopher, or no, the prophet, looks like he's ascending to the heavens, but he's just sort of rolling around on the ground. So I'm just, there's this curious thing about this desire to kind of escape you know, into the realm of the noumenal or whatever to, to, to get up there into the sky, like the challenge. And then that somehow being a failure or a disappointment or, you know, a fake, mm-hmm. um, that seems to recur in quite a lot of, of your writing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, um, I mean the one that feels, so the, the, so I, in like the angle of y'all that has the prose, the book angle of y'all that has the prose poems, I was interested in like how, you know, kind of in a world in which for, or like, well, I don't, I don't know how much this describes the world, but, but if it, the, um, kind of in the absence of some traditional sources of medicine, metaphysical value that like we feed, the culture feeds the culture and an image of itself. Mm. They're like aerial technologies and photography, which is, you know, which is an idea that a lot of people have had. I got interested in that feedback loop. And like in the title of that book, Angle of Yaw, which is the, the, which is the angle of deviation of like a ship, like a, like a boat from its, like the way that it, it wavers on its plotted axis. Like I liked that it was a science term that was kind of also a metaphor for the ship of state going awry, but also how that scientific language is so close to a metaphysical mm. language, like angle and angel and Yah and Yahweh. So mm. Um, mm. that book, I mean, you know, I, I do think that what, what right-wing politics, I mean, I do think what fascism does, right, is replaces, um, in the broadest sense, is, is tries to replace those evacuated sources of... Um, tradition with with a certain kind of spectacle. So sometimes that debunking of origin myths or like false unities or whatever is me trying to think about, like use poetry or whatever is like a critical space to think about that. Mm. But at other moments, um, like with the Reagan speech in 1004, which I don't think is really, I mean, I think I just made that up as an or I mean, I don't think I had that experience or whatever mm. but now I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> that, um but I do remember I mean I do remember that I mean I certainly remember the challenger yeah. disaster yeah, and yeah, I do yeah, remember the speech but um 
that actually is part of 1004's desire to like think about bad forms of collectivity as negative figures of good forms of collectivity. Mm. Like it's not like Reagan's good, like Reagan, you know, is a is a murderer and it's not like the poem is good, the poem is bad, but the way all that language circulated um, all that cobbled together language that didn't have any particular author and became transpersonal. It's a way of redescribing, sort of try to replace a kind of Reagan political doublespeak with a celebration of plagiarism as transpersonal. Mm. So it's an attempt to kind of redescribe. It's the author trying to think of like a new fiction, right, that, about origin that could be generative um, as opposed to being closed. And it's kind of like that. And I probably think about this because I'm in England. I'm probably that Frank Kermode book, you know, the, the sense of an ending mm. where he's like the difference between f- fiction and myth for him in that book is that a myth is a fiction that forgets it's a fiction mm. and can become regressive and apocalyptic. And, and a fiction, like, let me tell, let me tell this story about Ronald Reagan in this poem and try to imagine if I can anchor like a belief in the possibility of poetry out of these fallen materials. That mm. to me seems maybe generative so they are you're right um it is an interest in origins but it, it isn't it isn't it's really um it's not about this it's not any kind of belief that there is some origin worth returning to yeah. or that there's some ideal out there it's more about just like how could you how could you work with the materials in order to make them um the ground of a more politically and personally rich fiction mm-hmm. but not a myth of fiction yeah yeah I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I remember there's another poem where it says something about the night the spaceship exploded. You got to hug whoever you wanted. It was the best night of our lives or something, which, so again, that's sort and of... like, somehow that's, like, the only idea I have about collectivity when you say that. Like, it's, like, storms <laughs> and attack. It's, like, really is that yeah. thing. Like, this partition and social space goes away out of, yeah. like, this threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so there is this recurrent figure, and it's, you know, the interchangeability of the apocalypse and the utopia, that the utopia yeah. is, like, a good place, but it's also a no place, and... You know, that the the thing that's going to come, the revolution that's going to come, is it going to be climate change? I mean, you, you've got poems also that talk about um, the World Trade Centers and, you know, that is a moment of disaster, but which also led to the reorganization of social space and even to, to thinking about the representation um, of re- representational capacities of art. And so there's a long sort of verse essay about that, which... Kept, I kept returning me to that very infamous statement by Stockhausen about how the World Trade Center's collapsing was the greatest work of art in the cosmos, and it seemed like you, you, that was something that you were actually willing to engage with, whereas everybody else was like, "No, you can't, you can't say anything like." Well, that. certainly, I think yeah, it's really important to to engage with separating out the the image of the towers collapsing in the way that was marshaled politically with the fact of you know, those people dying in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I wonder if we can just think a little bit more about this, um, about this possibility of being together, mm-hmm. I guess, in a different way, uh, not in terms of some platonic ideal or some smashed up spaceship, but as something that can, can be in some special circumstances actualized in the present and mm-hmm. in this space. And, thinking about that in terms of the poem because when I was reading in in the hatred poetry you say something about how you know I've done the reading I know that if you don't give let go of this sense that as a child that you had as a child 
that and correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you let go of that sense, if you don't let go of that sense that you had as a child that um, your words had this sort of magic quality and could actually deform or change reality directly, then essentially you'll go mad. And so it's like this kind of urging us to accept the reality principle more or less, you know, like, okay, like there, a return from that magic space, which is an, another way of thinking about what the poem, the impossible poem can be is the sort of the, the poem of childhood. And there's a kind of a long section at the end of the essay where I talk about childhood and its richness as another source of poetry. And in that moment, I kept, I was sort of thinking about a different sort of psychoanalytic figure, which is of the good enough mother. And I was thinking, you know, there's this notion that the mother ought not to be perfect because if she's perfect, then the kid never learns how to do anything, right? It's only when the mother fails that the child actually um, recognizes themselves as a subject and starts to build their own world. And I thought, well, could that be the alternative to some utopian ideal of the poem, that actually the poem gives us the space of the good enough, you know, not lamenting, it's not an elegiac desire for the thing which we can't achieve, yeah. but a space for the, of the good enough of this is as much as we can achieve, and that is how we build our, our world. Yeah, totally. No, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, no, I think that's really beautifully. And it's funny because um, I, uh, one of the pers- first people who read the manuscript of this thing was, was Maggie Nelson, who's done a lot of work with Winnicott and uses Winnicott yeah. a lot in her book and, yeah. and had that same, I mean, like a really similar and, and um, that's totally right. I mean, like I say in the book, like this, this, this way of talking in the hatred of poetry doesn't really have anything to say about good poems. Like it, mm-hmm. it, 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 ta- it can say something about like a certain kind of really incredible poem and a, and a really horrible poem. Mm. And it's actually very silent about this whole variety of good enough poems. Mm. And the reason why I have that focus in the monograph is not because I think like this, like this book isn't a, like this isn't like a useful this this book isn't for me like a way to like talk about most of the contemporary poetry I value. Yeah. It's a way, I mean, some of it, but it's a way, like Ashbery, for example, it, it is kind of related to how I think yeah. about his work or whatever. So, but, but mainly I'm saying this story, which I'm trying to do something with, I think has something to do with why there's this cultural rhythm of always proclaiming largely amongst non-poets that poems aren't working where Mm. like, so that, that, that the way this book started and it, and I wrote it before the LRB edit of it, because what happened was that the, um, there was this thing in Harper's, which was a like this really predict, it was like this, it was this guy that it's almost always, it's it's always actually, I've only been able to find, yeah, white men who write this, kind of essay and they say where are the poets who used to unite us and our difference like now everybody's scared of identity politics like where are the great poets of the past um, who could speak for everyone like his example is Robert Lowell and uh, and uh, and then this really perverse thing he tries to do with Amiri Baraka but 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 anyway like the reason so then I wrote this because they said like will you write something in response uh-huh. and they, what they meant was and this was fine for them to mean will you say no poetry's alive and vital and here's like a list yeah. of these people you haven't read which is yeah. like true and people did that but I was kind of like well why did why isn't anybody asking like why isn't there a book that says why do we love to hate poetry mm-hmm. and so the story that it tells that's exactly not the story about the good enough 
is because I don't think that kind of denunciation is about the good enough. Mm. I think it's about um, a posture that in advance finds all poems insufficient because they they don't do this impossible thing he wants poetry to do, mm. um, which is speak forever. And, and, and that brand of white maleness is always nostalgic. It always locates mm. it in the past. It talks about Whitman as if Whitman, as if there like was this moment where Whitman could be the poet of the slave mm. and the poet of the master and everyone was like in their place in mm. the right way. Mm. So you're totally right. And I think the good enough, um, the good enough, that kind of approach makes a, a lot of sense. And even there are like all kinds of poems that are, I think, you know, really great and amazing and like for which the good enough might not be the only way to think about them that the book doesn't apply to. So mm. I feel like I live by the good enough thing. Mm. Mm. And most of my, um, most of, and that's a much better way to approach the reality of diversity of po po poetic practice. But I don't, I don't, and it, I, you could write something like, in, like you could have used that way as an approach to say like, well, these people don't understand, like, like they, but for me, I was trying to like honor and attack the logic that's behind that, the kind of idealism that's ensconced in the denunciation, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. And, and defenses, that traditionally defenses don't offer the model you're offering of the good enough. It would be mm. a really interesting defense. Mm. Usually they say, no, 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 no. Like the music of the spheres, mm, right? Like, you know, in mm. fact, like poetry, like there are poems written that, that they, they, they change your life in like every way and they make the world a place of like pure pleasure and bliss. And they, you know, mm. and I can't really adduce any examples, but, <laughs> you, you know, and so it becomes a, a different genre of writing where both the denunciation and the defense be, become pro genres of, of, fantasies about poetry without having to succumb to actual poems yeah and that that isn't about the good enough so but mm -hmm. i think you're totally yeah right. yeah yeah so, so that's interesting i mean and i can sort of think of poets who even on those grossly inflated terms thought that they were actually writing the ideal you know like what milton or you know like wordsworth or charles olson you know they probably were actually reaching after that platonic slash Pythagorean ideal of the poem of love and the, the, this grand thing and, the, and thought they kind of nailed it, you know. But most of us <laughs> don't feel that yeah. way most of the time. Um, but I want to come back to what you're just saying in the sense that um, so there's this, this kind of conservative reaction, which is poetry no longer speaks for the masses. Um, that's a shame. <laughs> um, but... And it's the fault of identity politics. And it's the fault of identity politics. But would you disagree with that? Or just would you agree with it for different reasons? About, about poetry's lost a, a capacity to speak to the masses. That, you know, like, to the, yeah, the universal. Yeah, I don't... Uh, I mean, so, so part of the other thing is that like, I, I don't really know what poetry means. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't know, like, so there was this other thing I talk about in the book where like George Packer was talking about like poets have lost the ability to move great numbers of people on the mall and blah, blah, blah. And I think he was really thinking about MLK. Like he was really mm. thinking about oratory. So, I mean, I think there are all kinds of media, none of which, none of, you know, they're not pure. They're all shot through with compromises and everything else that like do move great numbers of people. I mean, I think there are real energies and, the popular and, um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult question of scale too. Like we don't know, 
I'm, I, okay, so let me let me like fail to answer it in a more interesting way than what I was going to say, <laughs> which is that I think that the interesting thing about the questions of the value of poetry like that is that they're questions about crises in measure. Mm-hmm. So like what I want to say is like my the thing that I want to say as well, but Claudia Rankin's book sold whatever it sold. I don't know yeah, what it sold, yeah, yeah. but it must have sold 90, right? But the real problem is that we don't know if sales should be the index for value in that question. They shouldn't. Right. So, right. So they shouldn't. But then when the question is of mass appeal, it's like we don't actually have in common a measure for what it means to be moved or what it means to be moved in concert or for what it would mean to know about like how poetry was the agent Mm. of that change. So that really I think poetry is the place you go to pose questions about a crisis and measure of value. Mm. So that like the way that you always, we always fight it, like every time, I don't know how often you get asked this, but I get asked a lot, like, so how do you feel about like poetry's margin? I mean, I guess it's a version of what we're talking about. Like how do you feel about poetry's marginality? And the, and like, I feel like saying like, well, it's not marginal and I don't know what it is. And yes, it's necessarily marginal Mm. and the margins are important Mm. because really like that question is the like poetry part of what poetry's function is is to be this space where there's a crisis in existing forms yeah. of value yeah. so we don't really know i don't i don't really know how to I, what i feel more more interesting than any particular answer i could offer is like what i feel is that that question is just really part of the question of the measure of value um for collectivity mm. is so it's just it's what poetry is and it doesn't have a solution it doesn't have an answer to that question it mm. is it is the space where that question's like posed perpetually mm, mm. Mm, mm. yeah yeah i i totally recognize that um and it 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 sort of makes me think about 1004 and there are these moments where i got really angry when i was reading 1004 right cuz you know lowly poet uh reading these stories about this guy negotiating his book contract with these eating these baby octopuses that have been massaged 500 times to death and i kept thinking to myself at least baby 500 times it's octopuses, it at least. You know? <laughs> and and just the way that then the book um this is not the only thing that it does but it kind of develops this like literary equivalent of futures trading it's like i'm going to make a novel on the promise to write a novel in the future and then you get stuck in this loop of the kind of the futurity of the commodity that just is going to last forever and constantly reproduce itself and it's very hard to tolerate that when you operate within a you know the value system which is poetry, which is this sort of marginal, very anti-market in a lot of ways um, that has this, you know, whole, whole kind of um, system of, of a, a very different system of credit, of cultural credit that is associated with it. Not all of it, but the kind that I, I'm sort of more interested in. So so I just wonder how, I mean, for you, those two sides of your practice kind of square and this, you know, this kind of excoriation of the the virtuality of the future as a, a term from kind of commodities and, mm-hmm. you know, and the notion of the future, which is this ideal proposition that the poem somehow ought to speak to and yet doesn't, um, and then falls into this, this internal, this space between the past and the future, which is a space of failure. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. So the book is, the book is crossing all these different, futurities and trying to be as like trying to make them as I mean I you know like the baby octopus thing was my idea to find a figure for like 
the most decadent form of leisure is like where a massage is murdering this thing, you know, and then it's being eaten. And then it's a bat, so it's a figure for the worst kind of decadence, but then it also becomes a figure totally, you know, flawed and whatever else, but it becomes a figure in the book for a, an imagination of a social body. I mean, it recurs in different yeah, ways. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like on the wall of the, when he's getting, yeah. but, but, but it, but it's also like, the thing in the book is like, so what would it mean to like think about the octopus as a good figure for sociality and like the way that the neurons are distributed across its mm, body mm, and mm. so that it is this kind of sensate collective body or, an, or, or a collective organism. So the, and the way that like the book advance is funding fertility treatment. Mm. So biological futurity is interacting with commodity futures and, um, and that being in this moment of capital where it both feels like in inevitable, like it's like the only available measure of value, right? It's like he thinks about kind of this goes through this like catalog of abstract exchange. Like, you can see like how many, like how many, uh, IUIs is the mm. book advance or how many like cars or how many hours of a certain kind of labor. Mm. A world in which that feels like both totally inevitable. Like we can't, yeah. it's like really hard for us to figure out what the alternative to that would be and also totally fragile and doomed. Yeah. And so, um, like there's going to have to be something, you know, that isn't that. So, yeah. So in the book, I wanted to go, um, I mean, I wanted to start with the kind of most, like what I was thinking, like what would, what would be the most absurd and extreme way to make the financialization of the future, the frame through which he tries to imagine other kinds of possibility of mm. collectivity and mm. to go at that. And I'm not, I mean, I don't know if it works or whatever, but the, I mean, it doesn't work. Like it doesn't bring anything about, but it is this exercise and then trying to recover, like I mentioned earlier, like bad forms of collectivity as figures for social possibility. And that becomes the kind of poetic operation of the, and I was thinking that there's that weird, um, which I think I, I have at the, I mentioned at the end of, um, trying to like figure out what that Wallace Stevens line about poetry yeah, is a kind yeah, of money, like yeah. trying to figure out what that could mean. And, um, I do think in the most fundamental way, like I was also trying to remember the miracle of money. I mean, money is such an incredible technology, mm. you know, that, that you, that you have, that you have signs for social power that circulate in this way and that produce all these incredibly complicated networks. Although now it's in such an intensely perverted form. Mm. Um, so I, I do think about, and, and Whitman is the figure of that embarrassment because Whitman is such a nationalist. Mm. And Whitman has this fear, like he's always saying, like, you know, he's always writing about like, oh my, I worry, like we need poetry as the secular Bible because if there isn't this great poet, like me, then <laughs> it's just going to be about money. Mm. Mm. Right? Mm. But he doesn't, you know, it's not really, he doesn't really come up like he doesn't, it's yeah. like, it is about money. So, yeah. so I just, I just think there's that whole, you know, and even the way that like, yeah, so I, I just think, like, I wanted to go at all that. But I also think that there's this other thing in the book um, that's related to that, which is, like, I was kind of raised on the kind of, like, and it's really important work to me, but the kind of, like, the Frederick Jameson kind of. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Total thinking of like basically it's like everything is capital. Mm. Like everything is capital and the only thing you can do is reveal that on different levels of practice, mm. you know? And I was kind of like thinking, well, so let's say you're going to like write, write a book under that condition and not, and like, first of all, that's not it, like, that was like, that was like the eighties and not, like, that was a real yeah. end of history narrative. That was like, yeah. capitalism is like one, it's so invulnerable that like, this is the mournful form. And now like, it starts to be like, no, actually like, you know, look at how it doesn't like it's doing a good job of destroying itself in a lot of mm. ways. But the, like the, the David Graeber, I mean, a million people say this, but I remember being struck by a way he was talking about where he was saying, you know, the problem with that way of talking is that it's just so, so it just seeds everything to the power of capital. And that like you should actually be saying like, when you break bread with a friend or when mm. you like, you know, do X or Y or Z, like it's not innocent. It's not innocent to spend time with like your child or whatever, because what protects you is a police state or fails to protect you, like whatever, right? It's not innocent, but it's not like pure capital. Yeah. Like yeah. the idea, the idea that like that's totally describable and exhausted by capital, which is yeah. kind of like the way I was thinking, I mean, I wasn't living that way exactly, but I would, because I, I don't know what that would mean to mm. live that way, right? Mm. But I was thinking that way. And then in 1004, I wanted to say, like, so let's, like, put the most, like, corrupt, you know, let's, like, yeah, like, this guy, like, ate the octopus. And, like, <laughs> this guy got a book advance. And the challenge is that he's going to write a thing that is going to be a commodity and he is going to be totally complicit in all these networks. But he's not, he's, he's, he's going to seek out moments of care or possibility that are not exhaustible mm. with it, with, you know, and, and so that's like, that's a really complicated, yeah. I mean, politically problem, you know, it's not like that's like, I'm like, and I have solved the problem. Yeah. Like, of course it's yeah. totally like, well, that could be a really, that could be like a huge defense of all kinds yeah. of, it's know. a compromised position, but they, they yeah. always are. But I like this notion of the, the author as a, as a, an octopus, which is another escape artist, right? Escaping in a cloud of ink, um, as opposed to sort of a Keatsian idea that the artist, the poet is a chameleon who has no self. Instead, they've got this octopus that is kind of has stretching out its tentacles everywhere. Yeah. It is absorbing other selves in, in some way. Um, yeah. but yeah, so there, there is this theme again in 1004 that I think is, is connected to the way that we've been talking about poetry, which is the sense of the future. So there's both, there's a, there's this recurrent theme that the future, um, uh, that events can change the nature of commodities. There's like a coffee pot of ground coffee that becomes a different thing. It's no longer a commodity because of the situation of this storm. There's reflections on artworks that have been damaged and have lost their value and then seem as if they, they're sort of like icons that have come back in time of, from a time like beyond that or the, when value has been transvalued by catastrophe or by some sort of utopian uh, alternative. And, and I wonder if the, that 
the coffee pot, the damaged artwork is also then a cognate for the for the poem. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, because yeah, and I mean even that that um the ability of poetic form to register distress mm. is is a way to to um I mean usually we think of that in I mean, there's the, like, kind of expressive, like, the personally expressive model of that, like, the Creeley, like, for love, like, you know, like, the poems breaking up under the emotional pressures of the yeah. utterance. And yeah. and there's, like, the kind of language, I mean, there's the kind of, I want the poem to be broken so it doesn't, it's not a commodity. It's not, like, the smooth surface of a commodity. But I also think it, yeah, that the damage, um, that the way poems can formally register distress and the way the language can return with the difference in the space of a poem is really similar to those, to those things. Yeah. Mm. That's a, that's a nice mm. way to think about it. Mm. Um, and just to kind of close the circle before we, we go to take questions from the audience. Um, I was thinking about that too, in terms of, uh, of relation, um, and the opposite of hatred is, you know, is being love. Love is the word that the essay sort of ends with. Um, and um, they, I think there is a shift in the book of poems. Um, there are a lot of poems that, in the beginning of the book, that are very... Well, I recognize in them a feeling that I had as kind of, you know, like... a repressed clever kid going to catholic school in philadelphia like just wanting to get the hell out of there and being you know the richness of of the environment in which you grew up but also this desire to sort of find a world beyond that space and then um but there there is a kind of ironic or um sarcastic kind of quality to, to quite a lot of them um then there's like a section of a selection of prose poems which somewhat continue for me in that in that mode slightly in the mode of the sort of the new sentence of you know gatherings of of different ideas and you're trying to trace what the sequitur is that leads you through them and then there's this really amazing poem um where it's suddenly I'm, oh, I'm blanking on the name of it but it's it ends it's oh it's dedication right so um the form of the poem, it's like sort of very anaphoristic. So it starts four, four, four over and over again. Um, and, and it ends with, um, a, a proper name, right? Um, and, and it's a, it's a love poem. Um, I don't know. Do you want to, would you be willing to read it? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they deserve to hear you read a poem, right? I mean, you should probably find it easier if I, by yourself. Um, Yeah, this is called Dedication. And it's the, fir- it's the dedication to the book Mean Free Path. For the distances collapsed, for the figure failed to humanize the scale, for the work, the work did nothing but invite us to relate it to the wall, for I was a shopper in a dark aisle. For the mode of address equal to the war was silence, but we went on celebrating doubleness, for the city was polluted with light and the world warming, for I was a fraud in a field of poppies, for the rain made little affective adjustments to the architecture, for the architecture was a long lecture lost on me, negative mnemonics reflecting weather and reflecting, reflecting, for I felt nothing which was cool, totally cool with me, for my blood was cola, 
for my authority was small involuntary muscles in my face, for I had had some work done on my face, for I was afraid to turn left at intersections, for I was in a turning lane, for I was signaling despite myself the will to change, for I could not throw my voice away, for I had overslept, for I had dressed in layers for the long dream ahead, the recurring dream of waking with alternate endings she'd walk me through, for Adiana, for Adi. Thanks. Um... And so there is there, you know, a sort of assertion that you can't, you can't get rid of the will to change and you can't throw your voice totally away and a return to, um, to direct address. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about that as the balance to the hatred of poetry. You know, there's this lovely little um, book by, by Badu called In Praise of Love, which is a sort of conversations, and he talks about how... Um, uh, the business of politics is the marshalling of hate, essentially. Duh. Obviously, we can see that right now. But um, that there is the revolutionary practice of love, which is this moment, this opportunity to see the world not from the perspective of identity of the one, but from the perspective of difference. Um, and I wondered if that moment actually arrives at that point in the, in the collection. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I also, you know, the, um, like, it's a dedic, it's a, like, I wrote this book that, you know, The Mean Free Path, that's kind of all, it's, it's very interested in, like, the possibility of address and the problems with address and, um, Mm. and yeah, but the desire to, like, be able to find a way to, um, to make direct modal statements of affection and interconnection without, like, that either being, like, fake polish or, you know, ironic or something. And, um, and then like I wrote the book and then I was like, okay, and I'm, I'm going to, I always knew I was going to like dedicate it to Adi. And then I was just like, okay, for Adi. And then I was like, it's not enough. Well, well, no, I was like, I was like, so wait, like the whole book is about like how hard it would be. Yeah. The whole book is like trying to figure that out. Yeah. And then it was like, no, I, I, so I should write up like the dedication has to be part of the work. Yes. Yeah. Like it's not going to like solve the problem, but it has to like say that it's it's it can't be external to the work. That's the whole thing. So then I wrote that poem that's kind of in the stanza pattern of these other poems, but but mm. different. And yeah, like the four, it's like um, yeah, it's all these reasons to despair, like despair for mm. the, the yeah. Although it also reminded me of Christopher Smart's terrific poem for yeah, his cat, right? <laughs> that's the most beautiful poem. Yeah, Jubilati Agne. People go read it if you haven't. It's the most amazing poem about a cat, literally, in yeah, the history of humanity. Jeffrey. Yeah, it's Cat Jeffrey. Um, yeah, no, I, I thought it was, it was really beautiful. Um, so I think we're, it's getting to be time to open up to audience questions. If anyone has there, is there a microphone that, or shall people just, oh, there is one. Okay. Anyone have any questions? Hello. Um, real quick, um, Ben, uh, you speak in uh, Ten of Four and you've written that previous essay about these broken artworks and uh, you mentioned the idea of uh, poetry as being the space or this kind of question about um, value. Um, what do you think about waste? Like garbage, trash, rubbish? What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, the, um, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the like the like those things that have that are declared of no value are really like like those things that um, are no longer exchangeable. Um, like they have like the like the the um, octopus or like when he talks about like like thinking about like bundled debt as a sign of interconnectivity, even though it's the perverted form. I think that like waste is another word for like the bad other you know, to abstract exchange, but like, at least it's other, I mean, it's part of the same system, but at least it's other. So like, it's still a ground to imagine, um, you know, like redescribing, like how do you recuperate the waste without just like reinserting it into the economy? And what I really loved about that project that, um, it's called the salvage art Institute that this, um, woman, Elka Krajewska founded where it's a kind of a long story, but I can't remember what I call it in the novel, something else. And it's a little different the Institute for total art. Like what I liked was that her, like first she just did this incredible thing of like administratively, which I can't summarize even if I have a lot of time, because I don't really understand it, but she got these insurance companies that had declared this work to be waste, to be total, to be of no value. They got to, she got to get the works and then she would display them and you could, but not, it was like you could, you could break them more if you wanted. Or, so there, there, it was a totally different relation to objects. And the problem for that project, an interesting problem built into that project has become, so how do we talk about this experience without just reincorporating, without revaluing the work uh, exactly in the way that we were celebrating it for not having, you know? And, and right away, I mean, the first thing that happened, like when I wrote about that, I mean, not just because I wrote about it, but I, she told me, she, she was communicating with me about this in relation to the essay I wrote. And she was like, yeah, like I got another offer for that broken Jeff Koons thing today. You know, it's like <laughs> up to like $20,000. Um, so like, I, I'm just saying like the, you know, that wa- the waste, waste is the, the, the waste is the other that we don't know how to revitalize without turning it into this other kind of waste, right? Which is the waste of human potential in a world in which that's the only kind of value. And I think working with found language in poetry is sometimes at least allegorically like a way of trying to imagine um, repurposing language that's been used, you know, uh, for whatever commercial military purposes or this standardized or as the language of power um, and trying to figure out some other way to use it, but how do you do that without, you know, integrating it back into the language of power? Whatever. Someone um, read these uh, last night. That was a thing where someone was reading these Adrian Rich excerpts about this problem. I think the book is called the. It's like the opposite of the hatred of poetry. It's not the love of it. It's something like the art of the possible, but it's not mm. that. But mm. it's something like that. It is that. It is that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really. Um, that just sounds like yeah. Anyway, but that, um, it was really beautiful on this question about like how do you how do you like disorder sense but still make sense? How do you like if you, and how do you do that without just becoming the language of power again? So I think waste mm-hmm. is just it's the yeah. I, uh, I thanks. That was a really interesting talk. Um, I just to kind of go on that and also Andrea's question. Like, how would a poem fail at failure? Then, like, if you can claim that failure kind of negatively transmits this image of of success, it registers sort of a lack of claiming universality. How how would a poem be bad? Or how would it fail at doing that? Are there other examples or sort of like like poems that um, whose problem is that they succeed? You mean that they you know that is it, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, any any poem can claim to have avoided doing too much, I guess, or avoided reaching for the universal. It can say, you know, I am a negative image of the possibility of this universality, but how right. would it fail well, at doing that? Yeah, so that, no, there's this, there's a problem of standards with the celebration of failure, right? Which is where you get the like Beckett thing, the fail better thing. Um, and I think it's really important to distinguish between species of failure kind of in the exact same way like you started. I thought you were going to say when you were talking about hate, you were going to say, um, like, so let's, you know. Who do we hate? No, I thought, <laughs> I, no, I thought you were going to say, like, so, you know, let's make this, like, some alternative to hate. But you mm. said something that I think is really true. You said, like, let's direct our hate at the right places. Like, mm. you were celebrating something. And I think it's, like. You know, like it, there is, I mean, hate is all, has its problems as a word or whatever, but like um, there is, I think, a place for, there is a kind of really important, passionate fury and there's a really important kind of failure because it's a failure that comes from a certain kind of risk. And then there are other kinds of failures that can be quite conservative or just apathetic. So I don't know how to generalize about it, but I think, I think you're identifying... Um, like one of the things, one of the many things this book doesn't do, which is the hatred of poetry, which is to kind of figure out um, like how, like what it would mean to distinguish between those modes, except to say that like there's this, uh, like when it talks about this anthology, Pegasus descending that these kind of heroes of mine put out of really horrible poems, there's a blurb on it. I can't remember who the blurb was from, but it said nothing mediocre. <laughs> and it was it was exactly right, right? It's, it's this idea that like the truly horrible is a space for thinking about value much more effectively than the mediocre. So the mediocre, which is the uh, you know, which is not the good enough, but it's maybe the other to the good enough, is a really um, it's very difficult to say anything interesting about the mediocre to have like an interesting experience of the mediocre. So I think that, that this book tries to say something about a kind of radical failure um, that's like the, when it's talking about like McGonagall or a dramatized failure, like the failure, of, you know, like the dissonance of an Emily Dickinson poem as a really effective poetic technique. Um, so it's, it's kind of case by case, but it's, it's like nothing mediocre is the phrase that occurs to me. It's the first test for a failure, as if it's merely mediocre. And maybe that's one space in which the category of the experimental is actually still useful, because, I mean, that's a very problematic way of describing a lot of different art practices. But I suppose what it does emphasize is that it's not, they're not attempting to succeed, right? And so it's not really possible for them to fail. And so I guess the only way to fail would be well, now I'm going to come over all sort of heroic, not to try. No, but you know what I'm saying, that, 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 that actually to conform is, is the only kind of failure. Yeah. Any other questions? Um, yeah, so my, my question goes back to, uh, to your novel, specifically 1004. Um, I choose to read it as a memory narrative in the sense that I think, you know, someone like Proust would come to mind, maybe W.G. Zebold. Uh, novelists who are themselves could, could be said to be theorists of memory in a way that they are concerned with things like visuality and language and the fact that you choose to incorporate images in your text, obviously Zebord comes to mind. But So I suppose the question would be, um, it's kind of a grand question, I suppose what is your theory of memory or if you have a kind of conception of memory and how you see this 
tension between language and visuality, um, and whether that's you know whether that's productive tension or whether that's problematic, or whether you see language as aspiring to the visual. Yeah, I don't see language as aspiring to the visual, and I think that part of why I put images in novels is to make that clear. Right, so that the kind of like even the grainy photograph has such a surfeit of visual information that it takes off a certain pressure from the prose to try to be a transparent window on the world. Right, so that it, so that on the one hand, it's it's kind of like seeding something to the visual that frees up the prose to do other things, and then on at the same time, you know, like we're told because it's true in a lot of ways that like the public sphere now is totally dominated by the image. But I mean, I think the novel, but not just the novel, but the novel is a really good place to, to show, to kind of demonstrate and think about the degree to which images are text dependent or, you know, are caption and context dependent and the way that, you know, I mean, everybody has an example of this, but like certainly for like, I feel like for my kind of, like the Rodney King trial, it was like the first time where, um, I mean, there was all kinds of innocence involved in like this being my experience of it in a certain way. But like, if they had, like, there was the visual evidence, like just, you know, I mean, now we see this like all the time in every kind of way, but like there was this tape, right? There's like, they're just beating the shit out of this guy. Like there's just a tape. And then watching the trial, like when watching the way it was talked about, it's like where you slow down the tape or you play the tape with different narratives or different people talking about, you know, you have somebody say, like, I was scared. Like watch the tape again now under the sign of that guy who's like hitting this guy in the head over and over being scared. And it's like, if you want to see it, like, sure, like I can kind of decide that, you know, I mean, I mm. can't see it, but one could see it. So the point is that the, I, I just think that the novel is a good space to remind us that the you know, or like the, you know, they could say, like the the ticker at the bottom of the screen could say after September 11th or before the invasion of Iraq that there was like no known, you know, weapons, no link, but no known link between September 11th and Saddam Hussein. It doesn't matter if you show the images of the tower collapsing and then you show, you know, Baghdad, like eventually like that link is forged in the mind. So, but, so sometimes it's the image, like, I want, it, I want there to be a way of thinking about recontextualization of the image through absorbing it in prose. There's something about memory that's kind of linked to that. I don't have a theory. Of, I mean, I don't have, like, an interesting theory of memory. But the, um, so, like, the other thing I really like, especially, uh, like, the reason why the image is in 1004 is that um, I, I like how that in the space of the diegete, like, in the space of the story, you can have like characters look at an image on a phone and then you can put the image there on the page. And so there's this simultaneity. I mean, it's fictional, but a simultaneity of people in the novel looking along with the reader and also kind of along with the writer, like everyone's looking at the same thing. And that's not real. It's a figure for a kind of correspondence between these different levels of reality. But so that instead of uh, the narrative only being in the past tense, there's actually this um, can, this cal- you know this calibration of distances using the image, where suddenly everyone's like briefly coeval, um, so that it's actually a way of I mean it's totally constructed and fictional, but breaking out of a kind of stable memorial narrative space. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's what that book is about. All that too is just like you know like like the you know like Back to the Future as a collective memory, you know. Um, 
or, or like that, or like, you know, and, and the way that politics trades on spectacular myth and those kinds of memories and how, how pros can think, think through that stuff. But I don't have like a general, I mean, I think formally, in the, I, I think formally, certainly like part of how I understand pacing as a, as an motif in, in repetition and poetry and in prose is to produce technically things in the work that function as memory. You know, so that you re-encounter language with a difference, and the difference has to do with your memory of a previous encounter. So that on the plane of form, you start to have, you start to form memory. And then the way you can like link that up with meditations about time on the plane of content becomes part of the work. And there is a, a lot of repetition and repetition as a figure, you know, and then these kind of coronal sort of structures in some of the poems where the last line of the previous one becomes the first line of the next. And so repetition becomes both a formal device and, a, a, you know, an object of contemplation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, maybe we have time for one more question. Thanks. Um, I was wondering about... Uh, the relation of the virtual and the actual to the notion of experience, and then especially with regard to leaving the Atasha station, where the uh, main character, Adam Gordon, is at any point in the novel detached from experience. And uh, in contrast to trying to resolve the problem and seeking some sort of presence, he is actually yeah, making his problem his solution, seeking for more distance and seeking actually the virtual, which is... As a poetics, it might be arguable, but when it comes to relations and when it comes to love, he is also the virtual possibility of a relation is effectively more fulfilling than having a real relationship. So I was actually, I should turn this into a question now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, so when love becomes actually love for the possibility or maybe if you just could expand on the notion yeah, well, of the I mean, virtual. The novels for me, like the, and one of the ways I feel like I'm most traditional in thinking about the novel is that it's like a space to think about the art-life distinction. And you know how like one of the interesting things about novels is how many of the great novels are about the danger of reading novels, the danger of confusing fiction and reality. You know, it's the Quixote, it's Madame Bovary or whatever. And he's kind of an example of someone who has this idea about art that spreads out into other domains of his experience and he confuses it. It, it doesn't work as a, I mean, at, at moments it kind of like, yeah, like at certain moments, I think there's like pleasure or possibility in it, but generally it doesn't work. Like it, like he can't see people. He's only seeing his projection of, you know, of what he thinks people are seeing. He's full of anxiety. Not that, that just like goes away once you commit to particular things or whatever. But so part of what I wanted to do is to take this idea that I thought was like really beautiful and generative in relation to like John Ashbery's poetry and watch it spread out into these other domains of experience and watch it go wrong to a certain degree. And not, not always disastrously wrong, but to, to show how it, it can't transfer without real problems. Um, and that to me is like what, like what novels, like a lot of my kind of favorite novels and many different times are about is like what happens when you actually start to confuse the aesthetic and other domains of relation. Like you don't want them to totally be separate, but like it's really, you gotta get the levels right somehow. And then that becomes about like, growing up or like failing to grow up and the mess all of us become, you know what I mean? So I, I think that, I think you're describing it like perfectly 
And, um, and I'm just saying like, yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things I like about, but that's one of the things I think novels can do really well is show what happens when you start to confuse aesthetic categories and other kinds of categories, like social categories. If I could turn it around, because what's happening in that book is happening at a lot of levels and a lot of, and a lot of other contemporary novels as well. So my idea was far more that you, that the novel um, shows a kind of symptom of this time in which people are constant, constantly detached from experience and that this experience is turned into a poetics rather than the poetics is turned into experience. Yeah, but the other novel, I mean, I guess the reason why I talk about it as traditional and not contemporary is that both novels are hugely invested in, in literariness and in literary form, right? So like the constitutive irony of something like leaving the Atocha station, if it works, and who knows if it works, right, is that there's this person claiming he's not a real writer who's written that book. So if you think the book is a work of literature, it ironizes his claim to fraudulence, right? It, it's, it's, about, it's about like literary form actually being a spit, you know, like ironizing that anxiety to a certain degree. Or 1004 wants to, you know, a, a, imagine a way of um, using, of acknowledging fiction as something we live by, not getting out of fiction in order to like live in some kind of immediate reality, but to like, how can, how can you think about careful fictional organization as not as myth, like not forget that it's fiction, but as like formally significant. Whereas a lot of the work, some of which is like really good. And I don't mean this as like a value judgment about the work, but like, um, you know, the canal scarred or whatever, like it's, it's not, it's, it's not that it's like, I'm done with literary form. Right. Like, I, I don't believe like, you know, it's not I'm not to say like there are levels of complexity of that thing or it's like, how can I make the novel like a document, like a kind of Warholian documentary or whatever. And that collapse of the art life distinction, that's just invested in a very different thing, I think. Which raises could raise all sorts of questions about the collapse between the distinctions between art and life that associated with the avant-garde and Peter Berger's critique, which you pick up, and also thinking, I, I suppose, too, about the status of Whitman's autobiography and his adoption of different kinds of persona and that sort of act of fictional autobiography, which has a very different sort of uh, uh, political motivation behind it. But we could be here all night, so... Um, I'll just ask everyone to um, thanks, Ben, for this really illuminating. Thank you. Thank you to find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.